Let's pray. Lord God, you bless us so much when we come before you. Now we ask that you would bless us this day through your word. Teach us, Lord, instruct our hearts, fill our minds with your precepts. Give you praise and honor and glory, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Got to get that new monitor back there. <laughs> the rough Roman soldier fell trembling before the Apostle Paul. His forehead glistening with sweat, his eyes filled with tears of terror. An earthquake had just knocked down the walls of his prison. Pandemonium ensued, and the soldier knew that he would pay with his life for the prisoners who escaped on his watch, earthquake or not. But curiously, at least one prisoner came back. Paul sensed God was doing something in the soldier's life, and so he told him to put away his sword. I'm not going anywhere, said Paul. In fact, we're all still here. Sirs, the Roman soldier said, recalling the sermons and the songs that he had heard from Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul's words are perhaps the simplest, most straightforward explanation in the Bible of what someone must do to be saved. Believe. Sounds simple enough. Just believe. But is that it? Mentally acknowledge that Jesus was God's son and died on the cross for our sin? Nearly 80% of Americans believe that. Although, for many of them, it really doesn't make any difference in their lives. They believe that Jesus rose from the dead in the same way that they believe that Napoleon lost the Battle of Waterloo. Is this all that Paul meant? Well, clearly it was not. Jesus' half-brother James claims that even the demons believe in this way, and tremble. But we're not going to be hanging out with them in heaven. Biblical belief, or faith, includes an act of the will as well. When Jesus called the crowds in Mark 1 to repent and believe, he was not adding a second component to belief, but clarifying what real belief entails. Repentance is belief in action. Repentance and belief are, biblically speaking, parts of the same whole, two dimensions of the same thing, two sides of the same coin. We believe not only that Jesus lived and died, but we believe he lived and died for us, and we choose to rest our hopes for salvation upon him. We believe not only that Jesus is Lord, which is a fact of history, but that, it, but that he is our rightful sovereign as well. And we submit to him as an act of our own choosing. When the writer of Hebrews honors the great Old Testament heroes of the faith in chapter 11, 
he identifies every single one of them with an action. Think about it. Noah constructed an ark. Abraham left his home. Jacob blessed his grandsons. Joseph gave instructions concerning his bones. Moses chose to be mistreated. And Joshua circled the walls of Jericho. The great chapter of faith is all about actions. Faith is belief in action. Did you know that there is no noun for faith in the Hebrew language? The reason is, it's because faith does not exist apart from an action. Faith starts with a mental assent. But if your mental assent doesn't lead you to obedience, then there really is no faith. Biblical belief is the assumption of a new posture toward the Lordship of Christ and his finished work on the cross. Now, we might express that new posture in a sinner's prayer or by asking Jesus into our hearts or some equivalent action. But just because we've prayed that prayer doesn't mean we've repented and believed. But the flip side of that is also true. Just because we haven't prayed that prayer, or perhaps don't remember praying it, doesn't mean we haven't repented and believed. See, repentance and belief and asking Jesus into our hearts are not always interchangeable. So let's look at that a little bit more fully. So here's how many Christians think of getting saved. All right, They realize they're a sinner and they need Jesus to save them. So they approach Jesus and they ask him to come into their heart. And of course, he says yes. At which time, he forgets their sin, writes their names in the Lamb's Book of Life, and commences a party in heaven in their honor. Now, if they begin to doubt later or not whether they're really saved, they replay in their minds that moment of conversion, which assures themselves that they were sincere in doing it, and then it kind of reminds them of the feelings that they had when they did it. And that works great, at least until your memory fails you, or you start to wonder if you did it right, or if you haven't deceived yourself into thinking something happened that really didn't happen. And then what if you begin to ask, you know, did I really feel sorry enough for my sin? Did my life change enough after I asked Jesus into my heart? Did I understand enough about Jesus or my sin or grace when I prayed? Were there areas of rebellion that I just wasn't aware of when I said all that? Uh-oh. Better ask him to come into your heart again. And so back you go to Jesus and the cycle just repeats. And you'll feel better for a while, but then you're probably going to have to continue to do this because of these reasons, you know, that you just lose sight of or lose hold of the fact that you've done this. And so if that's the case, then the only time you are ever going to be sure that you are saved is when you're standing face to face with Jesus in heaven. It's a long time to wait. 
But see, that's really not what the Bible says. The Bible depicts this moment of salvation quite differently. You start believing what God's word says about his lordship and his completed work on the cross. You understand that you have lived in rebellion of what God, God's uh, precepts and rules and so forth say, and that you have no hope of escaping God's wrath on your own. Okay? Then you kneel in submission to his claim on your life, and you rest your hope of heaven upon him. So you could, if you wanted to, you could almost picture this as like being a child hopping up into the arms of Jesus. You know, just, and then submitting to wherever he chooses to carry you. Knowing that at the end, he will carry you right on into heaven. And so if at some point then in the future, after having done this, you, you start to doubt whether or not you really have put your faith in Jesus, do you look backwards and try to remember that moment when you first jumped up into his arms? Well, you could. But wouldn't it be better to just try to think, oh, where am I right now? Oh, I'm in Jesus' arms. And if, if that's where you find yourself, if you're right now resting in Jesus' arms, then knowing the point at which you began to rest there is a, is a lot less important than knowing that's where you are. So in other words, your present posture is more important than your past memory. Conversion isn't completing a ritual, it's commencing a relationship. The assurance of a ritual is just based on an accurate memory of what you did. The assurance of a relationship is based upon that present posture of repentance and belief. Here's another way to think about it. If you are seated right now, there was a point at which you transferred the weight of your body from your legs to the chair. Now, you probably don't even remember doing that. So, you know, it just was a subconscious thing. But the fact that you're now seated proves that you did, in fact, do that. And in sort of in the same way, salvation is a posture of repentance and faith toward the finished work of Christ. And it's a, really, it's similar in that you transfer the weight of your hopes of heaven off of your own righteousness and onto the finished work of Jesus. And so the way that, to know that you made that decision is simply by the fact that you're resting in Christ right now. The Apostle John almost always talks about believing in the present tense because it's something that we do continually, not something we just did once in the past. The posture begins in a moment, but it lasts for a lifetime. There's a, there's a wonderful picture of this in the book of Leviticus I'd like to share with you. So once a year, you know, the Jewish father would... 
um, appear on behalf of the family to offer a sacrifice for their sin. And so when that moment came, the moment of sacrifice, the father would lay his hand on the head of the sacrificial lamb while the priest would slit its throat. Oh, come on now. You know the Bible is not exactly (laughs) full of all pretty images. But see, the resting of the hand on the man on the head of the lamb symbolized the transference of guilt from the family to the sacrifice. And as the lamb bled out, the guilt of the family was removed. And so really, you could think about it that faith is nothing more than placing your hand on the head of Jesus. And when we do that, Paul says that our faith is accounted for righteousness. There's a moment when we did first place our hand there, but in faith, our hand rests there for the rest of our lives. And if we want to know where, you know, if we are saved, we just look at where our hand, which is our hope for heaven, is currently resting. Now, when you first assume that posture, you might have done so with a prayer, or you might not. Because, see, the posture itself is a cry for salvation. It doesn't really matter whether you articulate it. But see, just because you might have prayed a prayer at some point also doesn't mean that you've assumed the posture. Any more than telling a chair that you're about to sit in it is equivalent with sitting down. So when it comes to that assurance, the only real question that you have to ask is, is my hand resting on Jesus right now? Now, as I noted in the first sermon, I never meant to imply, and I don't mean now, that there isn't a point of salvation. Or that, you know, you grow into your salvation over time. That's not at all what I'm saying here. Okay? Scripture depicts salvation as happening in a moment. We're born again. Our sins are washed away. Christ's righteousness is now credited to us. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We go from being children of death to being sons and daughters of God. God's favor replaces his wrath. We're filled with his Holy Spirit and baptized into his body all in a moment. There's there's not a gradual evolutionary process to that. It happens the moment that you choose to do that. See, a lot of people get all tied up about, you know, when, when that moment was. And there are some people that can remember exactly when that moment of decision was for them. You know, there may have been, we, we, you know, we talk about Paul's Damascus Road experience, right? You know, this, and that's kind of what everyone seems to point towards. You know, they want theirs to be like his because it was just so unforgettable, I suppose. You know, and they remember, 
how, em, how emphatically different their lives became at that point. You know, so if somebody was an alcoholic or a, an addict of some kind and they make that profession of faith and bang, you know, Jesus comes in, all of that that we just talked about happens and now they have taken that posture of repentance and they move forward with their life, leaving what was in the past in the past. But there's an awful lot of people where the moment is decidedly less clear. You know, they may have been raised in a Christian home. And if that's the case, then maybe your awareness of the lordship of Jesus just kind of grew and developed over time. But there never was a moment that you actually consciously made that decision. You never, you, you more, more likely can't remember a time when you didn't believe rather than remember a time when you started believing. Now, I, I know I've told this story before, but it's the perfect place for it. So if you've heard this, bear with me. But um, I have a, a good friend named John O'Dean who was pastor of a vineyard church in Maryland. And we were at a meeting one time. And he was, he was uh, like, did like we do, offered a pr time of prayer after the service. And this older lady came up t directly to him and was extremely distraught. And so he asked her, you know, what she needed prayer for, what was going on. And she said, well, <clears throat> that she had just been to a, some kind of a revival. And the preacher of the revival had told her that if she couldn't remember the exact moment that she made a decision for Jesus, then she really wasn't saved. And she was just absolutely distraught because, it, you know, she, her example was just like what I, I just have shared. She grew up in a Christian home. She always knew who Jesus was. She always felt like she loved him and had a relationship with him. And so she literally couldn't remember. You know, in other words, couldn't remember a time when that wasn't the case. So... <clears throat> John, who I believe at that moment came under the power of the Holy Spirit, because I don't know that any man would have thought of this so quickly, he just goes, so have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? She said, oh, yes, absolutely. And, and you know, do you believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead? She's like, oh, yes, I, I've always believed that. He said, well, that's Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He said that's Romans 10, 9 and 10. So if somebody ever asks you again the exact moment you were saved, you can just tell them it was on October the 9th at 10 o'clock. <laughs> the point is not whether or not we remember making the decision. The point is, where are you now? Are you now in that posture of belief and repentance? 
If you remember it and it's very clear, that's wonderful. Praise God. And if you don't, well, that's okay too, praise God. Because either way, what we are supposed to do is to maintain that posture of repentance and faith. And there's kind of a, an interesting thing about this as well. Maybe you think that you were saved at some point in the past, but perhaps you're mistaken. And then what you think is a renewal of your faith actually turns out to be the beginning. Well, no worries. Your current posture of repentance and belief is going to save you even if you were mistaken when you first assumed it. But wait, you say, don't I have to ask Jesus for salvation? What if I assume the posture but I don't say the prayer? I would argue that again, the posture... is really what is really in and of itself a cry for salvation. The Bible doesn't really say anywhere that you have to pray out loud. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do. I'm just saying Scripture doesn't really ever say that you have to say this prayer in order to be saved. Now, you know, sometimes when you share the gospel, it can be... Um, it might be helpful to be able to recount the point at which you made this decision. You know, because that way you can sort of urge somebody to make the same decision that you've made. But if you don't know, then you could say something like this. You know, honestly, I'm not really sure the exact moment I began to trust Christ, but I know that by age whatever, I was doing that. And I know that right now I am submitted to, the, 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 uh, to Christ's lordship and hoping in his finished work as my salvation. And I invite you to do the same right now. Now, one of the key things here, though, is that that assurance that you are saved is impossible unless you believe that salvation is by faith alone. And what's happened, I think, in recent years is that there have been some in the Christian community that maybe downplay this whole centrality of justification by faith alone, which was what Martin Luther advocated um, during the Protestant Reformation. And he did so, or they, they say this because, well, Following Jesus means so much more than simply accepting the gift of salvation. And maybe it, they would say it means adopting his lifestyle or committing yourself wholly to his kingdom mission and so forth. Now, it is true that following Jesus is about much more than just accepting a gift. You know, some sort of a change in, in a lifestyle and a commitment to the mission is always the fruit what comes out of a heart that's changed. But if we discard this whole idea of gift righteousness, in other words, that we all we have to do is accept the gift of Jesus, then we are effectively discarding the possibility of assurance. 
See, if, if our response to Jesus' offer of salvation becomes conditional in any way, whether it's adopting some new kingdom reality or committing yourself to the mission of Jesus, there will always be the question of how much is enough. You'll be plagued by the question of whether you're committing enough to a mission or sorry enough for your sins or living sufficiently by kingdom principles. Luther recognized this. And he said that apart from salvation by faith alone, there could be no real assurance of peace with God. The righteousness God gives us in salvation, Luther said, is a passive righteousness, meaning that we do nothing to, receive, to obtain it, but receive it by faith. Now he wrote a preface to his commentary on the book of Galatians, and he said this. These are, this is a quote. The most excellent righteousness, that of faith, is passive. We do nothing in the matter. We give nothing to God, but simply receive and allow someone else to work in us. Nothing comforts our consciousness so firmly as this passive righteousness. When I see a person who is bruised enough already, being oppressed with the law, terrified with sin, and thirsting for comfort, <coughs> it is time for me to remove the law and activate righteousness from his sight and set before him by the gospel the fact that in the Christian, passive righteousness is what, is, is what saves. So then, do we do nothing to obtain this righteousness? No, nothing at all. Perfect righteousness is to do nothing, to hear nothing, to know nothing of the law or of works, but to know and believe only that Christ has gone to the Father and is no longer visible, that he sits in heaven at the right hand of his Father, not as a judge, but is made by God our wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. In short, that he is our high priest and treating for us and reigning over us and in us by grace. The church is founded upon and constitutes in this doctrine alone. And so what he's effectively saying is that our assurance comes from seeing that our righteousness is already standing before God in the person of Jesus. And there he rests, and thereupon should rest our hand of faith. There's Mr. Luther. There we go. So to conclude, let me just reiterate. Belief is the hand that lays hold of the finished work of Jesus. Spirit-generated belief will always result in a new heart, a heart that loves good works and pursues them for Jesus' sake. It's impossible for, for real spirit-generated faith to not lead to that. And so if that's absent, then so is genuine faith. But these good works are not by themselves the same thing as faith. Faith's sole objective is the finished work of Christ. Faith 
cannot rest in the good works that it produces. Faith cannot rest in itself. Faith that looks anywhere else but Christ will find not assurance, but, in, uh, but incessant doubt. Only by resting entirely in his finished work can the troubled soul find peace. Paul's words to the Philippian jailer were simple and sufficient. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ means acknowledging submissively that Christ is the Lord and that he accomplished our salvation just as he said he did. And that we then rest our hopes there. Amen. Let your presence be a part of their lives this week in a very real way. And let them pass that presence on to someone else. Bless them as they leave this place today and bring them back to us next week. We give you thanks and praise, Lord, in all things. And ask this now in Jesus' name.